So we're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. At the beginning of the last three sermons from Revelation, I've taken time to talk about extra-biblical things that have been allowed to enter into our minds, that have directly affected how we read and understand this book, the book of Revelation. And I spent that time to go over those things because there are some within this body who have been taught that left-behind theology as if it were gospel, including me. Even though this way of seeing God and his salvation is new, less than 200 years old, it was not known or taught by the disciples or by the early church or by the reformers or even by men such as Spurgeon and Edwards. And for that reason, I needed to address those preconceived, commonly held views of this book before we actually get too deep into it. But we're all past that now. And now we can move to the letters that Christ commanded John to deliver to those seven churches. But I must warn you, this is going to get personal. And I must warn you, even more than that, that there is danger here. And I must warn you that what you have in your hands, what you have heard read to you, what you are about to hear preached to you, it's dangerous. Why this is dangerous will become evident in a minute. To understand why and what the danger is, we must remember that Christ is intimately involved, intimately concerned with these churches, with his church. What was said in these seven verses specifically mattered to that church. And because this is scripture, it has mattered to every church, to every saint for the past 2,000 years, no matter their location or what the date is on the calendar. And it should matter to us as well. And verse 7 is the most clear reason why this should matter to us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To have an ear to hear, that means that you have been redeemed. And so what is being said by the Spirit to each of these churches not only applies to that church at that specific time and location, but because it is from the Spirit, it applies to to us. And before we get into what God says to the church, the first thing that we have to do, we have to ask ourselves a question. Does, I, does any of this even matter? You see, I've told you that what you have heard, what you have actually read, what you are about to have preached to you is dangerous. And this is truth. And at the same time, it is also a warning, and it is a diagnosis. A warning? Dangerous? Diagnosis? You see, there are those who will come to a worship service. They will hear the truth of God's word proclaimed. They hear the warning to repent and obey. And then they walk out the door unaffected. The question you have to ask yourself, is that you? 
Are you one of those that come to church and will not heed the warning of the great high physician? Man, that was a great sermon. Lots of application. But then nothing changes in your life. Or maybe you're just one of those people that get nothing out of a sermon. All you can hear is the same thing that Charlie Brown heard when his teacher was talking to him. And honestly, if you fall into either one of those mindsets, why are you going through all of this? Why are you here? Because you're not scoring any brownie points with God. If you are here, and if you are unwilling to listen, unwilling to hear and then apply, you are wasting your time. And the dangerous part is this. The words that are being spoken to you will be used against you in a court of law. This is the truth of Romans 14, 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the thrust of that parable that Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12, where he warns his slaves, remain vigilant and on guard, looking for the coming of your master. There he tells us in verses 47 and 48, and the slave and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many beatings. But the one who didn't know it and committed deeds worthy of a beating will receive but a few. From everyone who has much been given, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. How much have you been given? There has never been a time in human history when it was easier to access the word of God, easier to access sound biblical teaching. But if the word of God does not rule over your life, if you are not looking to become a better slave of Christ, then what makes you think that you are a slave of Christ? And if you're not, then this letter is not written to you. Because this letter was written to slaves. Listen to Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the things which must happen soon. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave, John. But even if you are not of Christ, you will be held accountable for what you know. This word will be used against you in the court of law as you stand before that great high king on the day of judgment, a day that all people, every person will give an account of themselves to that eternal and faithful judge, according to Romans 14, 12. And this is why being here is dangerous. And you need to determine here and now, does this apply? And does this matter? But you may be thinking, what if it does apply? What are you supposed to do if you're convicted 
You know that you should do something different, but somehow you just get distracted. It seems that by the time you get to your car, you've lost that conviction. You've forgotten the sermon. You can't even remember what it was about. It matters, but you just keep forgetting. What are you supposed to do? Well, there are a few things that you can do, that you should do. Your bulletin, have you ever noticed that? And have you ever noticed that this bulletin is actually printed on pretty heavy paper? Something that is not going to just get really flimsily lost and thrown away? Write yourself a note. And then make it a point to go talk to somebody here in this congregation right after service is over. Confess your conviction to someone right after service, before you leave. Someone that will hold you accountable. A true brother, a true friend. And then act on that conviction. Because you are accountable. You are no different than the slaves in the parable that Jesus told us about. And you get to decide which one you're going to be. Jesus begins this letter with to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. This is, what, this is what the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands says. So who is this angel that he's talking about in verse 1? the angel of the church of Ephesus, there's basically two schools of thought. Some theologians say that this is representative only. It's stated in this manner to remind these churches that you are spiritual in nature primarily, that it's only through Christ do you have any power, only because of Christ and the Spirit that you actually mean anything, that outside of them you're nothing more than an elk's lodge. The second school of thought is that this angel is the pastor of this church. And they will use, those theologians that think this way, they will use Paul and what he wrote in Galatians 4, verses 13 and 14 as a basis for this. There he wrote, You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. But again, the angel here is one of those things that we've allowed to captivate our imagination. And we should not allow this to happen. Our imagination should be captivated by the one who is holding those stars, who is walking in the midst of the lampstands. Verse 1 here begins by telling us things that that one, why he should captivate our imagination. Back in chapter 1, when John sees Christ among the lampstands, there he is said to be holding the stars. But the word here in verse 1 is different. There he was just holding. Here he is firmly grasping. Also here, the intimacy of the Lord is displayed as being much greater than that in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he was seen standing among the churches. Here he is specifically seen walking among the lampstands. He's much more actively involved here than what we're told of in chapter 1. And because of this, he's intimately involved in what is happening, and he knows precisely what they're dealing with. Also, in verse 1, 
the language used there, that which is translated in English as write or write this, that's the same formula that was used by the Old Testament prophets when they had been given a divine message, such as back in Ezekiel 11.5. This is the same formula, the same manner of speaking that Jesus himself used when he walked this earth. Every time he said, truly, truly, as he does so often in the book of John. And he used this type of language both here and when he walked the earth to tie all scripture in with him, desiring for us to see that there is no difference in the message given in the Old Testament or, through the, or in the New. And he, this one that is walking among the lampstand, he is personally involved in his church. Listen to verses 2 and 3. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And, to, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. You've also not grown weary. He says he knows. And that's a personal no. That, that's not a I've been told kind of no or I have read kind of no. He knows since he's walked with them, walked among them, since he's holding tightly the angel of this church. He knows. He has suffered with them, toiled with them. And there's a lot to be commended for in this church. This church was active. They were diligent in being the church. They worked at it to the point that Jesus said that they actually toil at it. And being in Ephesus, the third most important city in Asia Minor at that time, the city where the temple of Artemis was, where the temple of Diana was located, where there was two temples to Caesar, they suffered in their toiling, which is why they're commended for persevering, remaining faithful, in that culture, in that day, was not easy for them. And not only were they a minority, a fringe of, on being, of being culturally accepted, to remain faithful, they were willing to test those who claimed to be of Christ to determine if they were actually, in fact, Christian or not. This is what is meant by, by the end of verse 2. Even though they were in the minority, even though they lacked cultural power and prestige, they didn't just accept people at face value to fill their church up. Fidelity to Christ, the holiness of the church, this mattered to them to the point that they would actually put people to the test and call out those who were not orthodox. And they were commended for this. How does that stack up with our understanding of biblical fidelity? Are, are we willing to put people to the test to determine if they're of Christ or not in order to keep this church pure? And you may be thinking, asking yourself, is that right? I don't know if that sounds right. I thought we were told to judge not. Should we actually judge people like this? Well, listen to the Lord as he told this church in Ephesus, this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. He told them there, 
Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. And being deceived by empty words, that does include that delusion of being that's being propagated in America about what you need. It's also the delusion of that false gospel being propagated in so many places that call themselves churches. The easy believism of so many. Or just the perversion of the word of God, such as those that claim that women could be pastors. And then the why. It's not that we are smarter than they are. That's not why we are not to have anything to do with them. It's not that we are better than they are. We're not. Listen to verses 8 through 10 of Ephesians 5. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of that light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. It's not that we're smarter than they are. It's not that we're better than those. We are now a breed apart from them. You, if you are saved, if you are redeemed, if you've been given ears to hear, you are a child of light. And their actions are proving that they're not. And again, it's actions, not thoughts, and not professions. These are the proof of whose you are. Oh, and at verse 8, that doesn't say that you used to walk in darkness. Because, and this is an important distinction, because if you think that a sinner is only a sinner because of their actions, then you will get the gospel, and you will even get the church wrong. A sinner is a breed apart. They are the devil, sold into slavery to sin. Satan is their father, according to the word. They are darkness. And this is what Paul says. This is what the Lord says. This is what we once were. Not in darkness. We were darkness. And this is the difference between the church and the world. Between the redeemed of God and those that are not. You are now a child of the light. You are a child of the Lord. The church is the body of Christ in this realm. It is the lampstand of God and living the living, the light-filled body broadcasting his truth into this dead, dark, and Christ-hating world. And the purity of the church does matter. So much so that Jesus commends this church for being faithful and seeking to keep it pure. And this is why the membership process to join a church is so important. Because this is when we, by our actions, we actually get to demonstrate our love for Christ. And even for that person that is seeking membership. And we are commanded to test the Spirit. That means that we're actually supposed to get to know every person before they're brought forward for membership. Get to know them to the point that you can say to the best of your ability, I see Christ in you. And God has given us scripture to help us test every spirit. The book of 1 John is a very helpful book to use to test every spirit. But how many of us here within this body actually engage with those who are seeking membership here? 
I'm not, I'm not talking about going up and meeting them, getting to know their names, asking about their job, where do you work, are you married, do you have children? You're supposed to ask them about Christ. You're supposed to ask them, how important is the church to you? Do you understand the gospel? What are your Christian disciplines? Are you in the word on a regular basis? This is all of our responsibilities. And we are all charged with keeping this body pure, with protecting the witness of Christ, with protecting the body itself from those that would do it harm. Do you understand is that if we let someone in here who does this body harm and you have not gotten to know them, it is your fault. Those that would do harm to our body, either through malicious and vengeful actions or just because they're not saved and they act that way. Christ is in the midst of this church, a church that he has called us to keep pure of. And this is why we are supposed to keep ourselves pure. The church here in Ephesus had done this, and they were commended by Christ for being this type of church. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. That charge just seems kind of ambiguous. What does Christ mean here? And because he gives us no examples, because it seems so ambiguous, we very often just shrug our shoulders and move on. I don't know what he means. He didn't say. How am I supposed to know? It sounds a lot like that spouse that tells their husband, I'm mad at you. You know what you did. And the other person in that marriage kind of looks at him and goes, I don't have a clue. Is that what Christ is doing here? He has something against them. He says, you have left or lost your first love. So what does that mean? They have left or lost something so important in their Christian life that it is completely unacceptable to Christ. And that's the thrust of verse 5 of Revelation 2, where he tells them, Therefore remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. But if not, I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Christ had commended this church for their perseverance, for not bearing with evil people, for testing people before allowing them to be entering into the church, for not being deceived by them. And he said that, he had endured, that they had endured for his name's sake. They hadn't grown weary. But there's something important that they're no longer doing that they used to do. Something that according to Christ is essential in the love of Christ. He tells them, Remember how far you have fallen, and then repent, and then do the deeds you did at first, those in keeping with repentance. So to understand what Jesus means here by leaving his first love, we must use his word to allow it to tell us what he means. 
John the Baptist once told a group of people something very similar that we hear from verse 5 from our text today. In Matthew chapter 3, as he's baptizing in the Jordan, the religious experts came to check out what he was doing to see whether or not it was kosher. And beginning in verse 7, he says to them there, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God from, that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What does John the Baptist mean there by, keep, by bearing fruit in the keeping with repentance? Well, what he tells us right after they're thinking that they were in right standing with their God because of their ethnicity, that speaks to what he meant. And specifically, we are told what bearing fruit in keeping with repentance means in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. There we're told, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those Galatian verses are given in the same context as these Revelation verses. In that letter, God through Paul tells the church in Galatia, repent. Do the works keeping with repentance. That's verses 1 through 21 of chapter 5. And then verses 22 and 23 are the works that are keeping with repentance. Same thing that John the Baptist just said. Do works in keeping with repentance. And the fruit of the works that Paul said to do is singular. Love. All the rest of those words, they're just attributes of love. They are the outpouring of love the work of keeping with repentance. We are to love. Love who? Love what? Before we answer that question, though, think about this. Think about how your actions in this realm prove your love. If you're married, you say to your spouse, I love you. And you prove it by forsaking all others. You prove that you love your spouse by laying your life down sacrificially and serving them. This is what love in this realm looks like. So what is it that we're to do in the eternal and spiritual realm to prove our love? What are we supposed to do that will demonstrate that we actually do love? Luke 10, 27. We are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And our actions here are what demonstrate if this is not reality or not. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. But if not, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent, verse 5. And you can love. You can do this because of the truth that's told to us in 1 John 4, 4, 9. I'm sorry, 4.19. We love because he first loved us. But know this, we will never, this side of heaven, ever love God or our neighbor in the way that we're commanded to do. 
because we still are in this body of death. But that's not an excuse. Not for those that have been given an ear to hear. You are to act in love. You are to pick up your cross and die daily. You are to follow Christ. We love because he first loved us. That is supposed to be meaningful to us. It's the only reason that we can repent of our sin and turn to Christ. Think back. Remember when you first came to Christ. Do you remember the zeal, the desire to obey? What are you no longer doing that you did then? More than that, though, more important than a feeling, you now know the commands of God. And if you're not doing them, then you're not obeying the Lord. And you need to acknowledge this as sin, because that's what this is. Failure to obey the Lord is sin. And acknowledging your sin is the first thing that we're commanded to do in verse 5. Remember, and then repent. Repent means to acknowledge sin and then do something about it, literally do something about it. The word picture for repentance means to turn 180 degrees around, going in the opposite direction. That's what repentance is. And this goes back to the opening part of the sermon about if this actually matters or not. Because if you can sit under the word of God and not have it apply to your life, Never have it convict you to the point of repentance and then change. That but if not of Christ here very well may apply to you. But what specifically is Christ convicting this church of, these people of leaving? It's him. He is our first love. But how? How did they leave him? I mean, they suffered for him. They endured for him. They kept the church pure for him. Those are, but, but all those things, all those things they did, they were internal. Those things either happened to them or they happened within the confines of the church. And this is where, to understand exactly what is being said here, we need to look at another one of those apocalyptic parts of the Bible. How that will actually unlock the understanding here. Matthew ver- chapter 24. You're going to need to grab your Bibles and turn with me there. Matthew chapter 24. Read along with me as I cover verses 1 through 14. And coming out of the temple, Jesus was going along. And his disciples came up to the point to point out the temple buildings to him. Matthew 24 is very important in understanding the book of Revelation. This is not just a series of events that are thrown in in Matthew. God specifically had these events. These conversations happen in order that these other apocalyptic verses will be able to be made sense of later. 
Verse 1 in Matthew 24 is the lead-in. There, Christ, God, along with the disciples, which is the first church, they were at the temple, that place where God was supposed to be worshipped at. And the disciples, the church, as they are with God, they point out the temple to God. Instead of being enthralled with walking with God, they're enthralled with something else. And we're told in Mark what they said to him. In Mark verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 1 of Mark 13, they said to him, Teacher, behold the wonderful stones, the wonderful buildings. Luke records part of what they were admiring as well. Luke 21, 5 and 6, while some of them were talking about the temple, that it had been adorned with beautiful stones and dedicated gifts. They're walking with God and are enthralled with the temple. And where they are at when Christ tells them of the end is very important. They are, they are looking at the trappings that surround the so-called worship of God. And they're enthralled with them as they walk with God. And he tells them there, as recorded to, for us in Matthew 24, verses 2 through 4. He answered them and said, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, again, that truly, truly, this is, uh, thus saith the Lord. Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which is not torn down. Now as he was, <clears throat> verse 3, now as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will happen. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they had been walking past the temple when they were admiring it. And when Christ first told them that not one stone would be left on another, Christ dropped that and he just kept on walking and walking off the mountain, uh, the Temple Mount, down through the Kidron Valley, back up the other side to the Mount of Olives, and he sits down, and he waits. And he waits. He waits for the conversation that he knows is coming. Finally, the question is asked, um, what did you mean by that? And his answer to them is really important. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one deceives you. That sounds a lot what was said to the Ephesians church in chapter 5 of the book of, of um, Ephesians. This is what Christ commended the church in Ephesus in our verses from today for not allowing, for not being deceived. They had not allowed anyone to deceive them. Christ in verse 5 from Matthew 20, 24 then tells us what the deception is. He says there, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you're thinking, it just doesn't happen. People are not that insane to actually claim that they are God. And if they did, who would actually follow them? Well, the historian Josephus has recorded that there were no less than six men at the time of Christ who claimed to be the Christ. The Bible records Two of those men for us in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 36 and 37. But this isn't the thrust of the warning being given to us here by Christ. What he is warning us uh, against here 
are men, primarily men, but not always men, who will come in his name with a fresh revelation, a new understanding representing the truth of Christ, the truth that orthodoxy is either missed or is now misrepresenting, or highlighting one aspect of him over all the others, as if his love and forgiveness is more of him than his righteous wrath and judgment. Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormons, was one of these. So was Ann Lee, who founded the Shakers. So was Charles Russell, who founded the Jehovah's Witnesses. So was Muhammad, who founded the Muslim religion. And in our own generation, those men and women who claim a fresh revelation, a new understanding, that new apostolic reformation, who will not hold to or teach the word of God as the rule and the authority of the church, who will say that God is still adding to the word. They are claiming the name of Christ, and they are deceiving many. And we are not to be deceived, because we are responsible. And this one who first loved us, who has made us to be able to love him, who commands that we obey him, He then gives us the reason that it's important that we obey, that we not be deceived. Jesus next speaks prophecy. He tells them and us, his church, what is coming. Verses 6 through 9 of Matthew 24. He tells them, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not alarmed, for these things must take place. But that is not the end. For nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And saints, just know this, that if you are not willing to obey now, here, in the quiet, in the spring days of life, in the easy days, You should rest assured you will not obey in the winter season when things get tough. And obedience, as hard as this is here for us to hear, this is the call of the true church to participate in the kingdom through tribulation, through perseverance, The same thing that Christ tells us in verse 9 of Revelation 1. And there is coming a time of testing. And this is a promise to every believer. And it may look different for each of us, but make no mistake about it. Tribulation awaits every believer. And we think in our day and age, we think in our American Christianity, it doesn't apply anymore. People aren't killed for their faith. Saints, this is the age of the Christian martyr. More people have died for their faith in the 21st and the 20th and 21st century than all the previous centuries combined. During this this past century, we have documented evidence of excess of 26 million Christians losing their life. That's almost twice as many 
as those that lost their life from A.D. 33 to A.D. 1900. And we may be safe from this type of persecution here, now. But that is not a call to disobedience. And if you do not repent, if you do not acknowledge your sin, if you do not obey, then verses 10 through 13 of Matthew 24 tell us what will happen to us when that testing comes. Verses 10 through 13. And at that time, many will fall away, and they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Verses 10 through 13, or what are being told to us in verses 5 through 7 of Revelation um, 2. You have lost or left your first love. Most people's love will grow cold. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Repent, do the deeds you did at first, Revelation 2.5. That is the person, the person that does that. That is a person we're told about in Matthew 24.13. The one who endures to the end. He will be saved. And then, and then we're finally given the key to specifically understanding what is meant by the love of many will grow cold. What outward evidence of those who endure to the end, who have repented and are doing the deeds they once did, is finally given to us in verse 14 of Matthew 24. And this gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a witness to all the nations. This church in Revelation 2, the church in Ephesus, they, they loved the Lord. They desired to keep the church pure, but they had lost or left their first love, Christ, for the things of the Lord. They stopped doing that which they did at first. You want to know what that was? Read Acts 19. Read about the zeal that they had for evangelism. So much so, their evangelism was so pronounced when they first came to Christ that those false God-makers, they rioted because they had lost so much business. These people, this church, the church of Ephesus, was so overwhelmed by the love of God Listen to what they did, how they acted, as told to us in verses 18 through 20 of, books of Acts 19. There we're told, also many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and were burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted at the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. This is what the church at Ephesus was like at first. But now, now we're told that they had lost or left their first love. They were remaining orthodox, but they had moved inward instead of being outward. They stopped evangelizing. Church, how are we doing in this?
the answer to that question is not good. Not good at all. We are. This church is the same as that church in Ephesus in this regard. And we must own this as truth. Not just corporately, but individually. You must own this as truth. And you must ask yourself, does this matter to you? And if so, then what changes are we going to put in place the answer has to be, yes, this matters. Yes. And since it matters, then what are we supposed to do? And you could be sitting there in your Reformed theology thinking, are we really supposed to be doing anything at all? I mean, since God is sovereign, he knows what I should do. And, and he has given me the ability He's given me the heart, the desire to do those things. So if I don't have them, it's really his fault. But God has already answered that charge. James 4.17 Therefore, to the one who knows to do the right thing and does not do it, to him it is sin. We me, you, all of us, we have been told what the right thing to do is. We have all been told what actions are required to demonstrate our love for the one who first loved us. Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, that is the lead-in. That is the reason why we obey. Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Verse 18 is the only reason that verse 19 matters. Verse 18 is the reason why we should obey. Why we should love the one that first loved us. And then he commands us. That one who all authority has been given. Go therefore. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And before you think that he doesn't actually mean that, he doesn't mean to go evangelizing. You need to understand what life with Christ was like when he walked this earth. During his earthly ministry, he chose 70 men to be disciples. And he sent them out every one of them to preach the good news of the kingdom to the unrepentant, Luke chapter 10. Later, he calls 12 apostles together. And the 12, he sends them out as well. And what was it that happened on the day of Pentecost? When that great revival happened, we, oh, we're hearing about all this great revival that's happening. Is it real? Is that really God working? We want revival to happen. We would love to see this nation turn back to Christ. Well, what happened when that first revival happened? As told to us in the book of Acts. Everyone, everyone 
began speaking of the mighty deeds of God, Acts 2.11. And how does the book of Acts chapter 2 end? The Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved, verse 47. And again, we're hearing about this revival. We were reading about it on social media. We desire to see a Lord. We desire to see him move powerfully in this body, in this community, in our nation. Well, how does that happen? Well, what brought about the end of Acts 2? God adding daily to number those that were saved. How does that happen? What does it mean that God does that? And if God is doing it, then why do we have to do anything? Well, God answers that question rhetorically in Romans chapter 10. There he says this, How will they call on him who have they not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they, they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news of good things. Preaching the gospel. That is the command given to every one of the slaves of God. But why? Why can't I just do other things? Why can't I just serve food, wash windows, do medical missions? Isn't that enough of a demonstration of the love that we have for the Lord? Why do we have to preach the gospel? Why do we have to witness? Are people really that important to God? No. We preach the gospel to people for Christ, for the glory of God. Christ is just that important. He is the light of the world, John 8, 12. He is the only hope of glory, Colossians 1, 27. He is the only means to the restoration to the Father, 1 Timothy 2, 5. He is the first and the last, Revelation 1, 17. He is love, 1 John 4, 16. And he is to be the meaning of our life, John 17, 3. And this should matter to us as a church. It did to the church in Ephesus. And the reason that it should matter to us is found at the end of verse 5 from our text today. But if not, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And that is not an idle threat. And don't take your security of the believer to mean that you are safe if you will not obey. Do not think, I'm good with God. Me and him, we got it going on. If you're not willing to acknowledge sin, obey the word of God and repent, and we must acknowledge the truth being told to us here. We must. We must repent. We must confess this sin. And then we must do. But the end, the way that God ends this letter to the church in Ephesus is very clear about the, the security 
of the true believers. Listen to verses 6 and 7. Yet this do you have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He's not concerned. He's confident in his true church. And he's confident that they will listen. That they will heed his warnings. They will return to their first love. That they will obey. The warning that he gives to us concerning the removing of the lampstand of those who will not obey, that is real. It is devastatingly, frighteningly real. But Christ doesn't fret over those that are not his, who do not care, who will not obey. He just moves on from that promise. And that's exactly what it is. It's not a threat. It's a promise. He moves on from that promise made to those who are not his. He turns his back, his attention back to those that are are, those that hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Those Nicolaitans, they, they were a group within Christianity who claimed to be of Christ, claimed his salvation, but not his lordship over their life. They were sure that they were good with God, but they would not allow the word of God to command them. In verses 14 and 15 from Revelation 2, there we're told more about these Nicolaitans. There he says to us, I have a few things against you to the church in Smyrna. That you have there some of some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to, to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. These are those that say that love wins. You know, the Rob Bells, the Joel Osteens, the Oprah Winfrey's that call on God or even use the name of Christ but do not hold to the word of God, will not allow him to command them, will not obey. Those that Christ hates. These are false converts. And this church would not allow them to be considered brothers. Church, this letter was personal. This letter is personal. It was written to a specific church long ago and far away from here. But it's also personal to us here and now. And we, church, are called to obedience. We are called to love. To love Christ, the one who by his blood rescued us from our sins. The love that we have been given by the one who loved us first, that's actually supposed to matter to us. And yes, dying to ourselves here is painful. It is. But the love of God, the forgiveness of our sin, and the reconciliation with the Father, that is much more important because that is not temporal. It is eternal. He has given us life. 
And he is the reason for our life. John 11.25 tells us, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And we demonstrate that love. The love that we have been given. The love that we now have through obedience to him by picking up our cross and following him. And that starts by us opening our mouths and proclaiming the good news that has been given to us. And we are to do this because of the promise made to us in verse 7. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Saints, we are called to preach the gospel, to proclaim the goodness of God, to tell of the wonder of our Savior. That's a command given to us. And more than that, out of the love that we have been given, we ought to actually desire to want to do that. How many of you, when you first fall in love, are not going around telling everybody about it? Man, you should see my fiance. She is so wonderful. I am so blessed. Do we not understand what we have been given in the Lord? Church, we have left our first love. And we need to repent. We need to obey. And we need to do this for the glory of God because he deserves it. Let's pray.